You are now listening to the August 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today, we'll study the word from 1 Kings chapter 3 through chapter 7 and 2 Chronicles chapter 1 through 4. Our story today begins with Solomon on the royal throne as king of Israel. Following his father's instructions, he put the nation's internal affairs in order and continued to resolve the problems with other nations. One strategic move was to marry the princess from Egypt. At that time, Egypt was a major force in the region. Being near the Nile River, it was greatly prosperous. Now, at a casual glance, it may not seem so strange for a king of one nation to marry a princess of another. At that time, a royal marriage like that meant a strong alliance between two countries. However, Among several wedding customs in Egypt, one was that the princess of Egypt should not marry someone from another country. It was very unusual that Egypt broke this custom and gave away their princess to Solomon in marriage. This was clearly a sign of Israel's growing influence in the region under Solomon's reign. After the wedding that was undoubtedly the talk of the town, Solomon went to the high places in Gibeon and offered a thousand burnt offerings to God. That night, God appeared in Solomon's dream. Solomon talked to God in his dream. Solomon praised God for his faithfulness and thanked God for making him king in spite of his youthful inadequacies. God said to Solomon, Ask what you wish me to give you. Solomon asked God for one thing. He asked for a discerning heart to judge and govern God's people and to distinguish between good and evil. God was pleased with Solomon's request. God said, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. I have given you a wise and discerning heart. I have also given you both riches and honor. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments, as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. When Solomon woke up, he worshipped God. He stood before the Ark of the Covenant and gave burnt offerings and offerings of thanksgiving. Afterwards, he gave a feast for all his servants. The Bible records one incident that exemplified Solomon's wisdom. It was the trial involving two women. His wise ruling subsequently made him famous all over the world. Two women came before Solomon, fighting over one baby. They lived in one house and gave birth three days apart from each other. One day, one woman's baby died in the night. 
because she laid on it while sleeping. In the middle of the night, she took the baby from the other woman and switched it with her dead baby. The other woman woke up and saw a dead baby, but that was not her baby. She quickly realized her baby had been switched and demanded to have her baby back. However, the other woman was adamant that she had the right baby. Eventually, she brought her concern to the king. Solomon looked at the two women fighting over the baby and said, Divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. One woman was astonished by Solomon's order and pleaded with him to give the baby to the other woman and not to kill the baby. The other woman, in contrast, said, Yes, that is a just verdict. What's fair is fair. Let's divide the baby. As the two women showed different reactions, Solomon rendered his final judgment. He ordered to give the baby to the woman who was willing to give the baby away instead of killing it. He knew the one who tried to save the baby was the baby's real mother. All of Israel heard about Solomon's wise ruling and they praised God. They looked up to Solomon for God's wisdom was in him. Solomon did not disappoint his people. He governed the land with the wisdom given by God. He instituted many changes to better serve his people. Solomon divided the land into 12 administrative districts and systematically reorganized them so his government could respond more quickly and fairly to the needs of the people. Also, under his leadership, there was growth in diplomacy that led to increase in trade with other countries. He used Israel's central geographic location to their advantage to be the transshipment port to facilitate trading with and across other countries. Needless to say, they made a tremendous gain and they were prosperous. King David expanded Israel's territory through military and political means. In turn, Solomon brought stability. He strengthened administrative organization and diplomatic competency to bring prosperity and power to the land. Many countries brought tribute to Israel and the people lived in abundance and stability. As God had promised Abraham, the population of Judah and Israel grew and became as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Ultimately, Solomon was able to make the land prosperous and powerful because of the wisdom God had given him. Solomon's wisdom was remarkable. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, animals, birds, creeping things, and fish. His wisdom and knowledge surpassed all. Proverbs is called a book of wisdom, which contains Solomon's collections of sayings and adage. In addition to Proverbs, Solomon is the author of the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. In these books, he shows his understanding of love and hate, birth and death, and righteousness and sinfulness. Solomon ordered scribes and a group of learned people to compile and record events. They also gathered and organized Israel's ancient history. Eventually, these sources would become instrumental in making the Bible. God used Solomon in his wisdom to leave us a document that reveals his love for mankind.
Among Solomon's many achievements, the greatest one, perhaps, was the temple construction. Solomon's father, David, entrusted him to build the temple. In 966 BC, four years after Solomon became king, he began undertaking the construction. Seven years later, in 959 BC, the temple building was completed. Solomon had used the temple design that David received from God. The temple had three parts, the entrance, the sanctuary, and the inner sanctuary. The length of the temple was 90 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. In today's measurements, it would have been about 2,700 square feet and 30 feet high. The building was a rectangular shape, and also there was a small room and attic on the side and behind the building that was used as storehouses. Solomon had meticulously prepared the necessary materials to build the temple. He used the best quality materials and employed the most skilled workers. King Hiram of Tyre, who had been good friends with his father David, helped out greatly. Solomon told Hiram he was building a temple and asked for the cedars of Lebanon to be cut. Solomon said he would pay for whatever price that was set. In response, Hiram said he would send as much cedar and juniper logs Solomon needed. In return, Hiram told Solomon to provide food for his royal household. Solomon gave 20,000 cores of wheat and 20,000 baths of pressed olive oil every year. If we convert that to today's measurements, it would be roughly 4,400 kiloliters of wheat and 440 kiloliters of olive oil. The cedars that King Hiram gave to Solomon were expensive and considered the best building material at that time. At the time, the cedars of Lebanon were especially in demand for temple building. Hiram also gave Solomon juniper logs, which were firm and exceptionally durable. They were light and sturdy, so they were used as pillars and ceilings. Temple building was a very large-scale construction project. Solomon gathered 30,000 workers from Canaan to build the temple. In addition, there were 70,000 carriers, 80,000 stonecutters in the hills, and 3,300 foremen who oversaw the project and supervised the workers. Solomon started to build the temple in the fourth year of his reign as king in the second month. He completed the temple after seven years and six months. We'll continue on with the story of kings next time. Until then, goodbye. Came crashing over me 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Jehovah Sitkenu, the Lord is my righteousness. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. So as we study the names of God, you find God's names to cover a wide gamut of emotions in people. When we study these names, they stir up emotions in us. For example, some of the names of God bring great comfort to us. They bring great comfort. Other of his names encourage us. It's like, oh, I needed to hear that name. Some of the names strengthen us while other names embolden us. And I tell you that because today we literally come to one of the names of God that I would say, if I were to put a term on it, it's a name that transforms us. It is a name that transforms us. And the name that I'm talking about is Jehovah Sidkenu. Jehovah Sidkenu, which literally means the Lord is my righteousness. And perhaps one of the greatest examples of how this name came to transform a single individual is none other than the Protestant reformer, the great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. Now, if you're new to this church, you'll know that I talk about church history quite a bit, and I talk about Luther quite a bit because he is a significant individual. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in Eisleben, Germany. Luther's father really wanted him to practice law. Luther, of course, wanted to be the good son, so he went and practiced, or he went and got his degree, a master's degree in law. But that is as far as things went, because God had other plans for Luther. And that plan consisted of a thunderstorm. Luther one day got caught in a very, very, very severe thunderstorm. And he cried out to none other than St. Anne. And he said, St. Anne, if you will save me, I will become a monk. Now, Luther cried out to St. Anne because she was the patron saint of miners. And Luther's dad owned a copper mine. So she, obviously, St. Anne played a significant part in Luther's life. And so in his time of trouble, he doesn't call out to the Lord. He calls out to St. Anne to save him and pledges to become a monk. Luther, of course, survived the thunderstorm, not because of St. Anne, but because of the grace and mercy of God. And Luther upheld his vow. He threw a party, actually. This is interesting. Luther threw a party, and at his party, he gave away all of his law books. That's not a party I want to go to. <laughs> hey, guys, come to my house. I'm going to have a party. Awesome. Hey, here's all these books, all these law books. He threw a party, and he gave away all of his law books to his friends, and he entered the monastery at Erfurt, Germany. Now, for most people, this would have been the end of the story. But for Luther, this was just the start. I mean, think about it. I'm, you know, Lord, I'm going to become a monk. You go to a monastery and then you ride off into history. And for most people that, most men that have entered monasteries and most women that have become nuns or whatever down through world history, that's what they did. But for Luther, it was just the start. Now you would think that entering a monastery would immediately give Luther a great sense of peace and comfort. I mean, after all, where are you going to find peace and comfort if not in a monastery? But that's not what happened at all. Far from it. Luther had a deep-seated anxiety in his soul. He truly struggled to understand how he, a sinner, could be in right standing before an absolutely righteous and holy God. As a matter of fact, the thought terrified him. It hounded him daily. Have you ever had a thought hound you? Yeah, where it follows you wherever you go? You listen, you can go into a monastery, but guess what goes in the monastery with you? Your conscience. Your conscience. Luther's conscience followed him right into the monastery and it hounded him daily, telling him, you are not righteous as God is righteous. And he knew it. Luther, of course, painstakingly tried to keep all the commandments of God. He did his best, 
the very best he could. But Luther's own shortcomings dominated his thinking. It dominated his thinking. I've stated in other sermons, and if you're new with us, this might be new to you, but Luther would confess up to six hours a day. Crazy. He would confess up to six hours a day, relentlessly confessing every possible sin he could think of to his confessor. He drove his confessors crazy, so much so that they sent him to Rome thinking that would cure him. He went to Rome and saw everybody praying to saints and to idols, and so he had just drove him more crazy. Luther would leave his time of confession, and he would doubt if he had confessed everything. Or perhaps that maybe he confessed with the wrong motives or with an impure heart, and so his conscience continued to badger him and hound him. And here's the deal. This ultimately caused Luther to despise the very God whom he so desperately tried to satisfy. He got mad at God. He was getting angry at God. You are righteous and you call me to be righteous and I can't do it. Therefore, I hate you. I hate you. Thankfully, Luther was a man who was carefully reading the Bible at the same time. Luther was called his tower experience. He was up in the tower reading the book of Romans. And it is there that everything began to change because Luther ran across verses like this. And church, this morning, it's my honor to turn our attention to the word of God. So church, hear the word of God this morning from Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, And also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. And everybody say it with me. The righteous shall live by faith. It wasn't just this verse alone. There was other verses like Romans 3, 21 and 22 that transformed Luther. He says, it says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You see that sentence right there? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it? Hold that in your mind because we're going to come back to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. As Luther read verses like this, as he read the book of Romans, he was transformed. He realized in that moment that he was totally incapable of producing the righteousness he needed to stand before God. Now, normally that would be horrible news. You're telling me that I am incapable of producing the righteousness that I need to stand before God on judgment day and be welcomed into heaven? Yes. But here's the good news. Luther understood that the righteousness he needed had to be given to him as a gift, a free gift, and that it had to come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? It is the scriptures alone that are our final source of authority, and this is all Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. So it's sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, sola scriptura, soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Those are the five core tenets of the Protestant Reformation. Many people think that the Reformation started when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the doors at the church in Wittenberg. Remember, Luther came up with 95 grievances against the church, the church at Rome. He literally was number one, number two, and he had 95 of them. He went to the church at Wittenberg in Germany. He nailed it to the door, and that's how you got stuff out in the day. That was texting in the day. That was posting on social media in the day. The church doors were the, the social media of the day. Many people think that the Reformation started there. It did not necessarily start there. It started when Luther began to understand that the Lord was his righteousness. That's when it started. The Reformation started in Luther's heart long before he nailed that that document on the doors at Wittenberg. Now, one man Luther would have benefited from spending time with would have been none other than the prophet Jeremiah. Remember how I said, remember that verse where it says the Old Testament uh, testifies 
to, that there's a righteousness from God through faith to all who believe. Jeremiah was a man who knew this concept, and he wrote about it. Let me take you to Jeremiah 23. Again, church. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. <laughs> that Lord right there should be capital L-O-R-D. Again, when I, tra- when I copy and paste into to PowerPoint, it makes them lowercase. I don't know why, and I miss this. So, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, all caps, so we know that means... Yahweh. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Now, if it were lowercase like it is right there, we would know that it's referring to Adonai, the name Adonai, which is the term for Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 33 says this, In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The gospel that Luther discovered when reading the book of Romans was already being declared by Jeremiah in the Old Testament. God was literally revealing the gospel when he revealed this name to Israel. I am your righteousness, he tells Israel. Jeremiah, speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells the nation of Israel, the Lord is your righteousness. He is your righteousness. Stop trying to establish your own because you can't. And if you try to establish your own, you're going to go insane. You will. Because it's impossible. No matter how hard you try, you will continually come up short. Your only hope is that God has mercy. Your only hope is that God is gracious towards you. And you will find that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Messiah, Christ alone. The gospel that Luther discovered in Romans was already being proclaimed in the Old Testament. Now, this is very, very significant. Here's why. Because the issue of how one becomes righteous in God's sight or justified in God's sight is the number one issue that divides Catholic and Protestants to this very day. People always go, they, one of the questions that new people always ask me is they go, are you a non-denominational church? Many people are looking for non-denominational churches because they're just tired of all the politics and everything. And what I always tell people is we are a non-denominational church, but we are a Protestant non-denominational church. Let me explain the difference. For a Catholic... Your justification before the Lord is a combination of what God does to you and what you do for yourself. And this is called, this is the difference between what we, is, we call imputed righteousness and infused righteousness. Catholics believe, and I'm not saying this to degrade Catholics, so if you're here today and you're going, he's going to bash on Catholics, I'm not. Any Catholic theologian worth his weight would stand up here and fully agree with me. I'm just pointing out the differences so you know with clarity what you believe. So Catholics believe in what's called infused righteousness. And what that means is as I lead a good life, Christ died for me, and as I lead a good life in response to Christ's death on the cross, as I do good works, Christ infuses his righteousness into me little by little. And so throughout the course of my life, as I do good works, I grow in my righteousness. And hopefully at the end of my life, when all is said and done, I'm righteous enough to go straight into the arms of God, straight to heaven. Now, if I'm not, and I haven't committed a mortal or a venial sin, if I'm not righteous enough to go straight into the arms of God, where do I go? 
purgatory. I'll go to purgatory. And there I'll be refined and cleansed. And after a while of, of cleansing, I'll go straight into heaven. So Christ infuses his righteousness in me as I do good works and I grow in my righteousness. Luther said, that's not what the Bible teaches. Luther said, it's an imputed righteousness. Meaning, the minute you believe in Jesus, he doesn't infuse some righteousness into you. He imputes all of it to you so that it covers you, it showers you, it floods you, so that the moment you believe you are fully justified in God's sight by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that, my friends, is why you can pray the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I should die before I wake, here's a critically important theological statement, if I die before I wake, I know the Lord my soul will take. How can you pray that with confidence? You can pray that with confidence because you believe in the imputed righteousness of Christ. It was imputed fully to you. The righteousness of Christ covers you. It showers you. The moment that you placed your faith in Jesus, you became fully righteous in God's sight. This led America's greatest theologian. The greatest theologian this, this continent ever produced was Jonathan Edwards. That led him to write this. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. <laughs> That's it. Isn't that good news for a Sunday morning? Yeah. If you want to think, well, gosh, I want to contribute something to my salvation. Here it is. The only thing you contribute is the sin that made it necessary. Everything else is a gift of God. The righteousness that you need to stand before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the minute you believe, he imputes it to you fully. It covers you so that if you were to get hit by a bus today, that proverbial bus, you will go straight into the arms of God. Amen? That is the good news, folks. That is the good news that you and I stand fully justified before God here today because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And again, I point this out. For no other reason than, again, any Catholic theologian would stand up here with me and go, I, that's right, he's right. That's the difference between infused righteousness and imputed righteousness. That's exactly the difference. As a matter of fact, I can prove it to you. I don't need a Catholic theologian up here to prove that to you. Remember, the Reformation started in the early 1500s. Luther did not, Luther was a Catholic monk. He didn't want to lead the Catholic Church. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. And so he sought to reform it. But they were unwilling to reform. And so it ended up, that he started Lutheranism or the Protestant church, the, the ones that were protesting. Later in the 1500s, specifically right around 1563, the Catholics launched what was called the Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation. And they started it with the Council of Trent. And at the Council of Trent in 1563, the Catholic church placed an anathema or a condemnation on anyone who believes in faith alone. That condemnation stands to this very day. It stands to this very day. And again, I'm not saying that to throw any stones at the Catholic Church whatsoever. Here's what I appreciate about the men 500 years ago. The men and women of the church 500 years ago, Catholic and Protestant, understood what this generation has lost sight of. And that there is a radical difference in what we are teaching Today we're going, well, what's the big deal? We all believe the same thing. We don't. And the, those men and women 500 years ago understood that. They understood there's a significant difference between infused righteousness and imputed righteousness. They are a million miles away. You see, Luther had been trying to do was earn a righteousness before God by doing good works. What he discovered was the greatest news ever. He rediscovered what the gospel teaches is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ 
alone. What is fascinating is that the Apostle Paul was dealing with men in his generation who were trying to do the exact same thing Luther was doing in his life, trying to establish a righteousness of his own. And we read about this in Romans chapter 10. Listen to this. It's a fascinating passage. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, uh, to God for them, them being the Jewish people of Paul's day that weren't saved yet. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Israelites, is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Now, let me stop right there. Just because someone is zealous about God doesn't mean they're saved. Just because someone has zeal for God doesn't mean it's based on knowledge, right? Just because somebody's sincere doesn't mean anything. You can be sincerely wrong. Yes, you can be sincerely wrong. So don't be confused. Just because somebody is zealous for God does not mean they understand the gospel. Doesn't mean they understand the gospel. What do I mean by that? Paul gets to the gospel in verse three. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, here's the gospel. There is a righteousness that can be given to you free of charge by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Submit to Christ and take on his righteousness or seek to establish your own. Folks, those two messages are a million miles apart. The Jews in Paul's day, they were zealous about God, but they were seeking to establish their own righteousness. They would not come and submit to Christ. And Paul says their zeal is great, but they're not saved. Their zeal is great, but it's not based on knowledge. Then he says, for Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you want to stop trying to run around and being a really good person and earning God's favor by obeying the law, come and submit to Christ. His righteousness will cover you. You see, if your goal is to establish your own righteousness, then you're faced with a whole host of difficult questions. Questions like this. Have I done enough? Have I confessed enough? Have I confessed with the right motives? Did I eat too many donuts after the service and take them for other people? These are things you have to worry about, right? Have I prayed enough? Have I worked enough? Have I sacrificed enough? Have I been selfish this week? But you see, when you're trusting in Christ alone as the source of your righteousness, the only question is this, has Christ done enough? So I ask you, church, has Christ done enough? Yes. Yes, yes he has. A resounding yes, he has. Christ lived the righteous life I couldn't lead. He took the punishment I deserved and he clothes me in his righteousness from head to toe the moment I believe. He imputes his righteousness to me, all of it. So much so that Romans 8, 1 says there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. None, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that is why you can pray, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die before I wake. One of the most significant theological statements a child will ever make in praying that prayer I know the Lord my soul will take. Our salvation is not a combination of what God has done in my good works. It is a combination of everything that Christ has done and nothing that I've done. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And that is why we proclaim his name, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord is my righteousness. Listen, folks, Luther was a man who was totally transformed by this truth. He was transformed from an insecure, fear-driven, panic-stricken monk to a man who was so confident in his standing before God that he was willing to stand up to the most powerful forces in the world at the time, the Roman Catholic Church. That's like going head-to-head with the President of the United States, even more so 
because you're dealing with not just politics, you're dealing with religion, you're dealing with God. You think the president's powerful, the Pope was even more powerful. Now, everything I've said is in way of introduction to what I really want to say, and I mean it. So brace yourselves. Here's where it gets interesting. Our righteous standing before God doesn't mean that we live righteous lives here and now, does it? This is where you can confess. So everybody, are you living a righteous life perfectly right now? I'm not righteous. I sin every day. Listen, folks, even though we're fully justified, it doesn't mean that we're not still going to struggle with sin and temptation and stumble occasionally. As a matter of fact, our forefathers in the faith understood this, and they came up with a phrase. It was a Latin phrase, and the phrase was this, simul justus et peccator. That's Latin, and you know what it means? It means that we are simultaneously righteous and sinners at the same time. God declares us righteous even though we're not fully righteous in his sight and in our actions. We're declared righteousness because the righteousness of Christ covers us even though our actions are still not totally perfect. To put it another way, as believers, we're fully justified even though we're not fully sanctified. And remember what the word sanctified means? Remember Jehovah Mekedesh? Sanctified is that process by which God makes us holy. He's making us a peculiar people. He's calling us out of the world and into relationship with him. He's conforming us into the image of his son. And here's why this is important, folks. Here's why this is so important. Everybody stay with me because this, I don't fall asleep now. This is when you need to stay awake. The Bible not only speaks of God declaring us righteous, that is our justification. It also speaks of him leading us in righteousness. That is our sanctification. Okay, now, can you think of a Bible passage where it describes God leading us on paths of righteousness? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Jehovah is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths, and say it with me, of righteousness for his name's sake. Listen, folks, God not only declares you righteous, he is conforming you into the image of his son. You are, he's making you righteous in your actions. In other words, everybody look up here. This is very important. When God declares you righteous, that is your legal standing before God. What he's doing now in sanctification is he's bringing your moral character into line with your legal standing. And one day, your moral character and your legal standing, when you're in heaven, are going to be one and the same. You're not going to sin anymore. You're going to be perfect in every way, and you're going to be totally complete. But even though you're not totally complete yet, you are fully justified. Your, moral, your legal standing is set. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You are a child of God. What he's doing now is he's bringing your moral character into line with your legal standing. So here's the million-dollar question. This is the question I wanted to get to today, so listen very carefully. Here it is. Brace yourselves. Put on your seatbelts. Are you ready? Are you sure? Here's the million-dollar question. There it is. Are you faithfully following the Lord as he seeks to lead you in paths of righteousness? He has declared you righteous. You are forgiven if your faith is in Jesus Christ. But know that it doesn't stop there. He now wants to bring your moral character into line with your legal standing. That is why we call his name Jehovah Sidneku. He's not only the one who declares me righteous, he leads me in righteousness. Are you faithfully following him or are you, like I sometimes am, are you being stubborn and disobedient in this regard? 
Okay, God, lead me in paths of righteousness. You get 99% of me, but I get this one little percent over here. It's mine. You can't lead me over here. As a matter of fact, God, you get 99.9% of me. I get one-tenth of one percent that's still mine. You can't lead me here. And this is what we do as we hold out from God. His greatest desire is to conform us into the image of his son. He's declared us righteous so that we, if we die, if we get hit by that proverbial lust, we'll be rushed into his presence. But God's got to work for you on this earth. That's why you're still alive. He's got to work for you to do. But as you carry out your work, he's going to conform you into the image of his son. He's going to cause your moral character to come into line with your legal standing. He wants nothing more than to do this. So the question is, how does he do it? How does he lead us on paths of righteousness? Listen, I could do a whole sermon series on that, but let me give you just one quick example of how he does this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape. Do you want to know what it looks like for the Lord to lead you onto paths of righteousness? For his name's sake, there it is right there. He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Folks, that way of escape is God's path to righteousness. The question becomes, here it is, when the Lord provides that way of escape, am I taking it? When the Lord provides that way of escape, do I take it or do I say, hey God, come back in five minutes. I got some things to take care of. God, come back in 10 minutes, 20 minutes. I'll get on that path of righteousness. I'll take that way of escape, but not until I take care of a few more things. Listen, this requires us, the, the question, do I take the way of escape? when God provides it, it requires us to be honest. Because really, there's probably only two people that know if you take that way of escape or not, and that's you and the Lord. If you are a believer, you know what you will find when you are honest with yourself? You will find that God is always faithful in providing a way out of temptation. He is always faithful. He always provides that way of escape. Listen, I'm telling you, there is no shortage of ways that God can use to lead you out of temptation. I'm not even kidding when I say this. There have been many times when temptation has come knocking on the door of my heart or my mind only to have the phone ring at that very moment or someone knock on my door at that very moment. I kid you not. It happens all the time. You can actually have a bit of fun with it. The next time you're tempted, stop and see if you can find the way of escape. Make a game of it. And I'm not kidding because it's there. So in Chandler, Arizona, there is a thing called the escape room. Anybody ever heard of it? Anybody ever done it? Here's how it works. I haven't done it, but here's, our youth have done it. It's, you take your friends, they lock you in a room, they give you clues that you have to discover so that you can find the way of escape. Sound familiar? It's kind of like you're being tempted. In this game, the clues can be hard to decipher and the way of escape can be even harder to find. You're on a clock and many people don't make it out of the room. Now, why do I tell you that? Here's the good news, folks. Unlike the escape room, God doesn't make the way of escape hard to find during times of temptation. He doesn't. As a matter of fact, he often doesn't just provide one way out, but dozens of ways out, each of which are easily recognizable if we're honest with ourselves. Let me prove it to you. I'm going to finish with this thought. When I read the Old Testament, I read about King David, and he was tempted to commit adultery with Bathsheba. You guys know the story well. I kid you not, I can count at least a half dozen or more off-ramps that David could have taken to get out of that situation. God gave him more than ample opportunity to resist that temptation and to get out of it. Had David just followed the Lord's leading when presented with, with, with just one of those opportunities, God would have led David straight onto paths of righteousness. 
But the truth be told, and this is the hard part, in that moment, David loved his sin more than he loved his Savior, which is the very thing I do when I tell God to come back later. When he seeks to lead me on paths of righteousness, when temptation comes knocking at my door and I say, God, come back later, I'm saying, Lord, no, I don't want to go on to paths of righteousness right now. By the way, do you know what you find when God leads you on to paths of righteousness? You find that there is peace on that path. There is joy on that path. There's protection on that path. There's comfort on that path. Everything good is on that path called righteousness. And yet so often we don't choose it. Folks, there's no greater path that God could put you on in this life than the path of righteousness. And that is why we call his name Jehovah Sidkenu. The Lord is my righteousness. So if I can be so bold, I'm going to finish with two questions. I'm out of time. Here they are. Number one, are you trusting in Jehovah Sidneku as your source of righteousness? If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you've been trying to lead a good life so that God will accept you, stop and turn and repent and trust in the one that can make you righteous, Jesus Christ. The second question is this, are you faithfully following the Lord as he seeks to lead you on paths of righteousness? That's for those of us that are believers. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you and you are our righteousness. God, we thank you that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, may we be a people, a peculiar people in this world, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, whose moral character is constantly being transformed formed and brought into line with our legal standing. May the world look at us and wonder, what has happened? What has happened in that moment where we proclaim the Lord is our righteousness? We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said with me, amen. God bless you.
You can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Have you ever gone through a period of discouragement in your prayer life? You still believe in God and His love for you, yet struggling with doubt and unbelief, wondering if He will ever answer your prayers. If you have experienced this frustration, You are not alone. Many of us can identify with the same struggle, especially when we pray for prodigals for many years with unmet expectations. Our faith has wavered because of discouragements, of not seeing our prayers being answered in the way that we expected, even when we earnestly prayed in faith. Discouragement comes when there is a gap between what we expect and what we actually experience in our world. My beloved, when you are discouraged, what do you do? Proverbs chapter 18 verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. God's Word teaches us about the power of our words. Through our spoken words, we can release the power of life or the power of death in our world. When we align ourselves with God's Word in our hearts and speak His truth, 
the power of the Holy Spirit is released to bring it to pass and accomplishes His will and the purpose of His word in our lives. These words we speak actually have the power to create and change our beliefs, perspectives, and the atmosphere we live in. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The Hebrew word for say is amar, which means speak, declare, command, appoint, utter, promise, and demand. When God spoke, the universe was created. I learned this lesson about the power of spoken words when I was in the valley of death years ago. I remember the following words that Christian sisters said to me in that season. You are going through this trial and deep pain which you will never recover from. I will be praying for you. Every time, this is what I chose to say in response to their comments. I know my God is good all the time, even when I don't understand my journey. I believe God will heal me and make me stronger. He will cause everything to work together for good in my life. And He will use my trial and pain as stepping stones to propel me into my calling and fulfill my destiny. My beloved, today I'm happy to say that is exactly what God has done and exceedingly abundantly beyond expectations in my spiritual journey. Our God is so good and faithful. Let's become His catalyst of life and declare His word over our prodigals, believing in faith that we will see them return to the loving arms of Jesus. What we choose to speak over them today will determine the course of their future tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we bow down before your glorious presence and bring you our deepest worship as we experience your tender love and divine truth. Your unfailing love and mercy continues forever, and your eternal truth will last throughout all generations. Lord, forgive us for allowing discouragements and offenses to hinder our trust in your goodness and faithfulness. Thank you for giving us your promises as pure gifts of grace. We stand in awe of your greatness as we watch you faithfully keeping your promises to every generation. The fulfillment of your promises depends entirely on trusting you and your perfect ways and embracing what you do in our lives. Father, we trust you and fix our hearts on your promises, for they are our armor and protection. As we put our confidence in your word, we cry out for our prodigals. Please open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to your awesome power so they will receive forgiveness of their sins and be set apart in holiness and purity. 
Father, may they no longer walk as the rest of the world does in the futility of their minds because of their blinded understanding and moral darkness which keeps them from your abundant life and true knowledge. Rather, create a holy desire in them to come out from their lifestyles of sin and return to you with all their hearts. Awaken their souls to receive the truth of your gospel and the joy of salvation. Give them grace to totally let go of their formal way of life, which was corrupted by lust and deception. Please take away their rebellious, stubborn hearts and give them tender hearts responsive to your holy presence. Give them new hearts and put a new spirit within them so they will obey your truth, walk in your ways, and follow your example. Restore their broken relationships with their beloved families and surround them with godly friends. Lord, fulfill your divine purposes in their lives and fill them with your Holy Spirit so they can live as blameless, mature, and pure children of God as your shining lights in this world. We bless them in your holy name. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.